We were just exhorted to uh, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. We're going to read about that very thing from Ephesians chapter 6 in your pew Bibles, in the pews in front of you in the pew Bibles at page 1,824, 1,824, that's where you're going to find Ephesians 6 and the verses 10 through 20. And we'll read those together in light of especially what it is that we believe when in the Lord's Prayer we're taught to pray, uh, uh, that when we're taught to ask the Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So then, page 1824, Ephesians 6, verse 10, just where it says the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it as fearlessly as I should. Thus for the reading, then, of God's holy word. Now, if you turn in your forms and prayers books, in the pews in front of you as well, you find your forms and prayers books. You can find page on page 257, Lord's Day 52. We're going to just deal with question and answer 127, page 257, 257 in those forms and prayers books. We're going to recite together the answer to the question of what does the sixth petition mean, and we'll confess together this word, making it also our own. And just by way of note again, just reminder that we have two sermons left in our catechism series, so this afternoon and then, Lord willing, next Sunday we will finish with uh, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, uh, and then thereafter we'll begin a series on the Belgic Confession, but really on um, a defense or an apologetic of the gospel, an explanation of why we believe what we believe. Again, an opportunity uh, to, to, if you're ministering to somebody, invite them to church to hear about what it is that we believe and why we believe it. So then, Lord's Day 52, let's answer together uh, the answer to this question what does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong, by the power of your Spirit, 
so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual battle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we've been asking with each one of these second petitions of the Lord's Prayer, remember the Lord's Prayer is divided into two parts. There are three requests we make about God for God. We ask that His name would be hallowed. We ask that His kingdom would come and that we ask that His will would be done. So those are petitions or requests that we have for God about God's plan and purpose. And then the second three are requests that we have for ourselves, for the things that we need. And we've already seen the first two we saw about our daily bread, how we need the Lord to continue to provide for us and sustain us physically. And then we also saw about how the Lord has to sustain us spiritually. We ask for forgiveness of sins, a forgiveness that we are to express in the way that we relate to others. And now we have the last of the petitions, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in each one of these last three Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And now lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We've asked the question, do we really need to pray this? And and the reason we've asked it is because theologically or, or doctrinally as a church, we tend to know the answers. We tend to understand things in a way that maybe sometimes prevents us from appreciating the real seriousness, the real need of these petitions. We know, for example, that when it comes to forgiveness, that all of our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that. We celebrate that. That on the cross, when Jesus died so many years ago, that He bore the sins of all of those who trust in Him for all of those who believe. And so we know that in that moment, when He said, it is finished, all of our sins were forgiven. The sins we've already committed, the sins we're going to commit, the sins that those who are not yet born but will be saved, those sins too have been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And so sometimes we think to ourselves, well, since that's true, I don't really need to ask for forgiveness. I've already been forgiven, and so I don't really need to answer the call. And we see that sometimes in the church when we struggle with the call to repentance, when we have to acknowledge our sins before the Lord. That's a humbling thing for us to do. We don't like to do it. Nobody does. And sometimes we, we guard ourselves or we protect ourselves. We say, well, I I don't need to to acknowledge my sins to you. God's already forgiven me, that sort of thing. And so we don't really own our need of grace. That's the challenge. That's the concern that we have, that we don't own, that we don't genuinely, sincerely feel a dependence upon God and Jesus Christ. And that's also true now in this last request that we make of God in the Lord's Prayer, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because as good Reformed Christians, of course, we know that God preserves for His people, or preserves rather His people, from the beginning of their spiritual journey to the end. As the Scripture says, that God, the God who has begun a good work in us, will bring it to completion. Or if you will, more simply, we know that once you're saved, you're always saved. That's one of those great, comforting, profoundly encouraging confessions that we can make as believers, that the God who so powerfully grasps us holds us so tightly that nothing can take us out of His hands. Don't we confess that in those lovely words from Romans 8, 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as a result, we have this great comfort, but sometimes that great comfort results in complacency. That is, precisely because we know just how secure we are in Christ, we don't find ourselves having to battle. We don't find ourselves having to wrestle. We don't find ourselves really threatened or uneasy about the challenges of this life. So that when you come to this petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is a petition that is of great significance. Remember, when we fall into temptation, when we fall into sin, we fall away from the Lord. When we fall, when we, when we fall back into our old ways, when we fall into that, that way of rebellion against God, then, then we find ourselves once more at odds with the Lord. And that's a terrible place to be. That's a place of judgment. That's a place of destruction. That's a place of condemnation. We don't want to be there. None of us ever wants to be there. And yet we don't always find ourselves so passionately seeking the Lord's grace to preserve us, to keep us strong, because we think to ourselves, but I'm already secure. I'm already good. I'm going to heaven and it's all good. That's why sometimes uh, Reformed Christians are described as the frozen chosen. Because there's no passion, there's no dependence, there's no zeal, there's no, there's no fire for the Lord. And that's in part because we've become complacent. Our comfort, the Lord has given us comfort, has become complacent. And that's a very de- deadly place to be. That's, that's Maybe you might say the, the exact place that the devil wants us to be. He wants us to be in a place where we're not worried, where we're not afraid, where we're not concerned, where we don't see any threats, where we don't see any challenges. He wants us to be self-reliant. But we ought to be reliant only on our Savior, a Savior who promises to preserve us in the midst of the challenges and the temptations that we face. And we face them. We face them in all sorts of ways. As I was preparing this message, I was reminded of a young man who will remain nameless, but um, who's within our broader family. Um, a couple of young boys, actually, that years ago decided in Jordan along the one of the gullies there, uh, to build a ramp, a bike ramp, and to see if they couldn't, see how far they could jump uh, into, the, into the valley. Uh, and so, of course, one of the boys had to be the first one, and um, off he went, um, off into the air, into this wooded. I mean, there's nothing about this that is bright at all. Um, and it ended badly. It ended with a perforated bowel. Like, I mean, it was bad. And you go... Um, what were you thinking? Like, how is that a good idea? That's, of course, sometimes the problem with young men. They're not always the brightest. They think, I can do anything. I can, I can, I'm not afraid of anything. You know, those shirts that people used to wear, no fear. That tends to be the attitude of young men at a certain point in their life. And unfortunately, it's the same attitude that too many Christians have. I mean, just think about all the life choices we make that are so impactful on the experience we have. Something as simple as a job, a career that you're going to take. You think about how impactful a career choice is in your life. But do you ever 
Think about bringing that to God and saying, Lord, is this the thing you want me to do? Think about a marriage. Think again in terms of marriage. Marriage, I mean, that's a profoundly impactful experience in our lives. Do we stop and say, Lord, is this the person you want me to marry? Lord, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to accomplish this? My guess is that we might superficially, but generally speaking, when we make these massive life choices, we don't always appreciate the significance of them. We don't always appreciate how impactful they are. And we don't surrender them to the face of God in prayer, asking for His blessing upon them. Indeed, how often do we start our day? How often do we start the coming week? Or let's look back at the last week. How many days in the last week did you ask God to protect and preserve you against the challenges that you have to face? My guess is not too often. Because we tend to be more bold, we tend to be more self-confident, we tend to think that we can do far more than we can. But we should be reminded by the words of the catechism about just how much we need the Lord. Listen again to what it says. It's a humbling confession we just made. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. Now, of course, we're talking here in terms of our relationship with God. We're talking about our walk with the Lord. We're talking about salvation. When it says that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment, obviously that's physically not true. We can stand literally on our own. We're not children in that sense. But what we're talking about is standing firm in the faith. We're talking about standing faithful to God. We're talking about remaining steadfast in the way of obedience and of the Lord. And the catechism has just challenged us to admit that we can't stand in that way for even a moment. Now stop just there for a moment and ask yourself, did you really believe that when you just confessed it? Did you really think that was true of you? When you said those words, we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, did you genuinely believe that? This is where we need to start. This is where we need to begin our understanding of what God is teaching us in this last petition of the Lord's Prayer. And to help us understand why this is true, it might help us to recognize what the catechism goes on to say when it says our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. Can you stand against the power of the devil? The devil who is violent, who is cunning, who is the leader of rebellion against God, who is the prince of the spirit of the air. What does Ephesians 2 verse 2 say? He says, it says that... Uh, as for you, this is the beginning of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil is the ruler, you might say, of this world. I mean, we're starting to see that maybe more keenly than we have in the past. When you think about what's going on, for example, in the Ukraine, and you, you begin to tr you try, you wonder, why, what can explain this? What would make a man like Vladimir Putin do this sort of thing? What could possibly motivate such cruelty, such abuse, such, such anger? And you begin to understand that there is a power at work in this life that, that is beyond our ability to explain. 
And now can you stand against this devil? Can you stand against the devil who's been alive since the beginning, who's seen it all, who knows you, who knows your frailties and your weaknesses, knows your, the soft spot in your armor, who knows exactly how to a- attack you? Do you think that you can stand against this roaring lion and win? Maybe you think you can. But when you see a brother or sister, when you see a loved one fall under the sway of the evil one, you realize just how impossible it is to save them from his clutches, how impossible it is to draw them out of his jaws, that he is a powerful, powerful enemy, one who refuses to give up, who makes war on all those who believe and obey Jesus Christ. And that's just one of the three enemies. The, f- the second is the world. The world. The, the world that is so contrary to, to Christ itself. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15 at verse 18. There the Lord says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now imagine that, living in an environment where the world is against us. And against us, not necessarily in the obvious way. We're not living in a place where as Christians we're persecuted in the same way that our brothers in the Middle East are or our sisters in China are. But even so, when you think about the philosophies of our age, when you think about the technology of our age, and when you think about uh, the, the, the leading and the guiding of the intellectual elites or the governing authorities of our world, when you see the direction they're going, there, there are some things in there that are good, there are some things in there that are concerning, but what you understand and recognize is that it is all anti-Christ. Christ says, every life is precious. Our government says you may abort a child anytime. Christ says marriage is to be sacred. Our government says absolutely not. Christ says sexuality is to be pure. Our world says you may perform whatever immorality you desire. You begin to see it over and over and over again how it seems that our government is insistent that everything that our Lord has said is good is viewed as bad. Now we live in that world. We go to to, to function in that world and we know what that the impact that that has upon our spirituality. We think, and we talk about even relatives in different parts of the world, especially Europe. For, some, for many of us, relatives back in Europe, or in Holland rather, we have maybe brothers and sisters and their children. Maybe we have cousins. And we go back and we recognize how many of them don't attend worship, who don't go to church, who were raised faithfully, who were taught the things of the Lord and yet no longer want to walk in the way of the faith. And, and we wonder why that is. Well, we don't wonder. We know why that is. We know that the immorality of the age has overwhelmed them and swept them into the way of sin and disobedience. That their environment, their culture, their everything around them is so anti-Christian. And indeed, we are experiencing and, and understanding what that means more and more in our own day and country. Can you stand against that? Can you, as a parent, protect your children against that? Can you keep your heart free from those vain thoughts, from those philosophies that the world espouses? It is so easy. I hear it so often, even in our own conversations, even in our own family. Ideas of the world that are so foreign to the gospel and Christ 
that it makes you wonder, how did you come to think like this? Where did you get these ideas from? And the answer, of course, is in the air around us. Can you fight against that? Can you defeat that? What about your own flesh? Are you strong enough to defeat the desires, the lusts, the anger, the pride that well up unasked, unbidden in your heart that come to you so naturally? Think about Romans 7. We won't read it again. It's so familiar to us. But how Paul says, the good that I don't want to do, that, or the good that I want to do, that I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, that I do. Isn't that a word for all of us? Isn't that a word that we all must struggle with? That we experience in this life, even without our asking for it, thoughts and emotions and attitudes that we know are wrong, that we know are rebellious, but we feel them. They're real to us, and we think that they are They ought to be taken seriously, that they ought to be appreciated or valued. So that the catechism's right, isn't it, when it says that we are too weak to stand even for a moment because in ourselves we are tempted, we are are happy with sin. We, We all have, if you will, this trailer hitch in our spirit that connects very easily. It's an easy connect system for sin. And all the devil has to do is sort of look in our direction and we connect to it. And the world just has to nudge us and we connect to it. And our own flesh says, this is good, let's live this way. And it's not just us. It's been humanity and it's even the church throughout the history of the world. You think about Cain and Abel. right? You remember how God came to Cain. God himself said to Cain, If you do good, I'll bless you. If you don't do good, it's not going to go well with you. And what does he do? He goes and kills his brother. David on his palace roof, seeing Bathsheba on her house roof. Peter being warned before, you will deny me three times. I will not. Let everybody else, but I won't. And three times he denies it. Jesus saying to Judas, I know what you are about. I know who you are. I know what you're going to do. And Judas still does it. Indeed, in our own hearts and lives, we know this truth. We know that the catechism's right, which is to say that we all desperately, if we're going to stand firm in the faith, if we're going to remain zealous for the Lord, if we're going to stay in the pathway of righteousness, we need help. And the challenge we have from this word this afternoon is to admit this is to admit this to ourselves, first of all. I need help. But also to each other, to those that the Lord has placed us in fellowship with, to say, I need help. As children, to our parents, as spouses, to each other, as family and friends, to say to each other, I need help. And not just to say we need help, but to be willing to do what is necessary, to stand fast, against so great an enemy, so great a threat. And what is the thing that we must do? Well, the Catechism says, So, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of Your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. What does the the Catechism teach us to do? Does it say, okay, listen, we're going to... um, 
We're going to go to some spiritual boot camp and we're going we're to learn to fight, fight, fight. No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, well, let's leave this world. Let's leave. Let's create a little a community of our own, a little commune far away from all of these challenges. No internet, none of the modern issues of life. We'll, we'll keep ourselves free of it. No, that doesn't. That's not what the catechism teaches either. What does the catechism teach us to do? Well, it doesn't teach us to do anything except pray. It teaches us to pray for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who's not only able to direct us and to navigate us through the dangers of this world. That is, right? That is exactly what the Holy Spirit does, you know. Think of John chapter 16 in verses 5 and following where Jesus gives those encouraging words to his disciples when he says, now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me where are you going because I've said these things. You are filled with grief, but I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. For unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's why Paul, and you remember this from some years ago, when Paul says in Galatians 5 at verse 25, after giving to us uh, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Meaning the Spirit is guiding us. The Spirit is showing us how to live. The Spirit is teaching us what it means to be a good Christian, to be a good child of God. And so the Spirit of Christ is the one who is in, he's able by virtue of his sovereign grace and power to lead us in the way of truth, to show us the way that we should go and to equip and enable us to walk down that path. The Holy Spirit alone is able to show us the way. But he's not only able to show us the way, he's able to to, to indwell us, to strengthen us, to equip us personally and powerfully to live in this way of obedience. That's why we read from Ephesians 6 in the verses 10 and following. Because we're called there to to, uh, put on the full armor of God and to do so in the grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to uh, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We are to put on the armor of God which is put on by prayer and put on by the prayer of the Holy Spirit. We are to rest in His provision in what He gives to us and protects us with so that we can stand fast against the enemies, against the flaming uh, arrows of the evil one. And those are serious threats. Those are dangerous things. And the Spirit works to keep us safe from them, keeps us alive, keeps us to be survivors in the midst of this all-out assault, this spiritual battle that we daily experience. And He works to preserve us precisely so that we can experience and enjoy the full blessing of God in eternity. You see, this life 
is not the fullness of God's blessing. We have a hard time with that. We forget that. We're so oriented to this life. We're so oriented to the blessings of this life, which are wonderful and great and rich without question. Fellowship with friends, using our gifts and talents, the beauty of this world, on and on we could go to describe the many, many, many blessings that we have as people living on this earth. And that's maybe why it's hard for us to realize that the real blessedness, the real power and promise of God is in the future, is in the day not just when we'll go to heaven, yes, that'll be a good day too, but even better than that when Jesus Christ comes back and when we'll stand upon this earth and we'll live in all of this blessedness without any of the stain of sin, without any of the brokenness and pain of sin. And God, He's looking forward to that. That's where He wants to get us. We're pilgrims. We're journeying. We're walking along a path. We are not at our destination yet. The walk is, can be at times very beautiful, very enjoyable. Even as times, at times it can be very hard, very sorrowful, very painful. But in both instances, even when we're stopping to smell the beautiful roses, we have to be reminded, don't stop here. You're not there yet. Keep going. Even as when we walk through the valleys of this life, we are to be reminded this isn't the end. This isn't what you're destined for. There's something better to come. But the Lord is bringing, bringing us, bringing us to a place of great blessing and great joy and great fellowship with Him and with all men. And He wants us to arrive there. And that's what the Spirit of Christ is at work doing. He's getting us ready to get there. Now, to do that requires a great deal of sacrifice and service. That's why in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews speaks as he does at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And just notice the first two things we have to throw off. Sin that so easily entangles. That's obvious, right? Sin's not good. If you're caught in a persistent sin right now, seek the Lord's grace and spirit to free you from it recognize, acknowledge that it is tripping you up, that it is preventing you from growing spiritually. There are things, right? There are things in this life that can prevent us from growing and developing as foster parents. We know that. Our little foster baby now came to us with some significant health concerns that prevented her from developing, from thriving. She was only surviving. And the reason she was surviving was because there were these things impeding her growth. Well, what can happen to us physically can also happen to us spiritually. There can be these things that prevent us from maturing in the faith, from becoming the people we're supposed to be, from being godly men, godly women, strong in the Lord. And if we're harboring sin close to our hearts, if we're, if we're doing something we know is wrong, a contrary to God's will, and we're just allowing ourselves to do it with, with whatever justification we might have, we are doing harm to ourselves. We are preventing our journey. We're preventing our progression in the way of the Lord. But notice that it's not just the sin that easily entangles that we're to throw off. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us throw ev off everything that hinders. Everything that hinders. Now, 
what hinders. It doesn't have to be sin. It would be, in this instance, it can't be sin. It's not sin that hinders because he says you've got to throw off sin too. There's two things you've got to throw off. One is sin. Okay, we're going to do that. The other is what hinders. Well, what hinders can't be sin, can it? In fact, it must be good because it's not sin, but it hinders. Like what? Well, work, for example. Work's good. The Lord wants us to work. The Lord calls us to work. But work can become a hindrance to our spiritual development as believers. Work can become so important to us, it becomes the idol we serve. It is the thing we're chasing after instead of the Lord. Can you see how work, for some people, become a hindrance to their spiritual development? What else? Relationships, family, everything good in this life can hinder. It really can. Not because it's wrong in itself. Absolutely not but because we have made it more important than it should be because it's preventing us from carrying on in our spiritual journey. And the Holy Spirit equips us to sacrifice those things, enables us to put to death that which is sinful in the eyes of the Lord and enables us to run the race that is set before us. Isn't that exactly how he finishes? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Indeed, there's the comfort, there's the assurance, there's the strength of this petition. When we look at what Jesus did, then we see that he had to run against the wind. He had to run against opposition. He had to do what was difficult and demanding but it brought him to the place of blessing. And as we focus our hearts and minds on him, we need to recognize as Christians we must do the same thing. That we must follow the path that Jesus has led us on. Our great shepherd draws us unto himself and confident in what he's accomplished, confident that he sits at the right hand of God, confident that in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. We just need to set our hearts on following him. Not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus, won't be easy for us. But it is the only way of security, of comfort, of strength. That's what this petition is teaching us to pray. It's teaching us to pray, I need help. And I have sufficient help in Jesus Christ, who by his Spirit equips and enables me. And now that's a prayer I think that you've got to pray every day. Every day you've got to wake up and say, Lord, I need help. I need help in my marriage or in my singleness, in my work, in my unemployment, in, in my struggles, in my joys. I need help. And the only one who can help me is you in Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so when we look again at this petition, as we have with the other two, we discover that they are not things that we should just take for granted. They are not things that we should just, you know, mouth and say the words of. But they need to be petitions that live within our hearts. That we need to live life so dependent upon God that we look to Him for every good thing in our bodies, asking the Lord to give us our daily bread. We need to ask Him for the grace that alone can save us daily, forgiving our sins as we forgive our, our, those who sin against us, and asking Him to sustain and protect us against the enemies that we face and the challenges that we need to endure 
asking him not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the end, these are very meaningful, very present, very powerful petitions that we need to take upon our lips with their full meaning in our hearts. Not just mouthing them, not just saying the words, but genuinely believing what they mean so that we can survive, that we can stand fast, so that we can, even as the Apostle said in that passage that we read from Ephesians chapter 6, that we might be able in the end to stand firm, having done, as he says, all that we have been called to, to stand firm. May the Lord give us that grace, and may we seek it daily. Indeed, let's do that together now in prayer, shall we pray? Merciful God and Father, we humble ourselves before you now. Each of us has come into this place, and there are things we know that are not good, that we struggle with. We know that. Lord, we know that. We are weak, too weak to stand even for a moment. And that's even before we consider the threat that we face in the devil, the world, and our own flesh. Lord, who can stand in the midst of so great an enemy? And yet you have given us your word. You have promised and assured us that when we stand in the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, equipped by the power of your Spirit, we have nothing to fear. Indeed, Lord, we have already prayed together that truth this afternoon, having heard with the psalmist in Psalm 27, that when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear, and the war break out against me even then, will I be confident. Lord, may that be upon all of our lips. May that be a truth we all hold dear. And may each and every day we begin and stand fast in all of the trials and tribulations of our lives by saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.